Hello, I'm Alma Schneider. I'm a licensed clinical social worker and the proud mother of four children, one of whom has Prader-Willi syndrome. And I am Iris Miller. I'm a certified rehabilitation counselor and the proud mother of two children, one of whom has quadriplegic cerebral palsy and is nonverbal. In this podcast, we discuss the uncensored truth about raising children with disabilities. Prepare to laugh, cry, and hopefully learn something new. This is Two Moms, No Fluff. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Two Moms, No Fluff, the podcast in which we discuss the uncensored truth about raising kids with disabilities. Today, I'm here with my partner, Alma Schneider. I'm Iris Miller, and we have a special guest with us today. Uh, allow me to introduce Vicky Rubin. And Vicky is an author, an educator, an advocate, and I'll let Vicky introduce herself. Vicky, please introduce yourself for our listeners who didn't hear about you before and uh, would like to learn something new about you. Hi, everybody. My name is Vicki Rubin, and um, I am an author. I wrote the book, Raising Jess, a story about hope, a story of hope, and I hope to talk a little more about that later. I'm a mom. I'm a nana. Originally, I wanted to be grandma, but my first grandson named me nana, and the rest is history. Um, I'm an advocate for uh, individuals with disabilities and also families of individuals with disabilities. Um, My oldest daughter, Jessica, was born with a rare chromosome deletion. She's 41 years old now, and she has two siblings, my younger siblings. My uh, daughter, uh, Carly, is our baby, who's 36, (laughs) and my my son, Alex, who's uh, 39. Um, just quickly, I've been married for 44 years. I, I got my undergrad at the University of Miami in Florida, and I met my husband, Mitch. And I always say he schlepped me up to Buffalo. And I've been living in Buffalo since 19, Buffalo, New York, since 1979. And we have two dogs, a Hungarian Vishla. I don't know if anyone's heard of that. I and an have. Italian. Oh, yay. My <laughs> sister-in-law Really, they have yes. a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then an Italian greyhound, who's also a therapy dog. So we do some volunteer stuff. Nice, mm-hmm. nice. Well, what we like to ask everyone who's on this podcast, who has a child with a disability, is what was it like when you received the diagnosis? So I, I write a lot about that in the book because my mama knowledge knew something was wrong right away. Mm-hmm. And the doctor kept telling me maybe I needed some counseling that something was wrong with me. Wow. And so we, I would go to every visit every month and he would kind of talk me into, oh, everything's going okay. And I'd go home and I'd be like, all right. And then a day or two later, I, it would, then dawn on me, no, it's just not right. And then I would go back. And after six months of this, I call him Dr. Dismissal. Um, my, I do what every Long Island girl did. I called my mother. We, I went to uh, um, a hospital in, uh, in Long Island, uh, North Shore Jewish. And 
was seen by a neuro, uh, an, an expert in um, neuro neurology, and they did tests on Jessica and determined that she was delayed in every single milestone. And when I heard that, I, I mean, in, in a way I felt relief because I knew, and I know it's odd to say a feeling of relief. Of course there was sadness and my life is different, but now I felt like I could do something about it. Whereas before I felt like I was just fighting the doctor. And in my career, I worked with a lot of families and Jessica's 41. So I was thinking, hey, back in the day, the doctors didn't believe you. It's not back in the day. And it's still going on. We did a lot yeah. of uh, training for physicians about keeping families as part of a team. Because you're, a family might not have the medical knowledge, but no one has the knowledge that a family has of their child, the day-to-day -day history. And why not use that resource? Why wouldn't every medical professional use that as a resource? Yeah, you're absolutely mm -hmm. right. And it is very common um, for it to happen now. And I'm just so impressed, as I'm sure Iris is, that this was your first child and you knew. You didn't even have anything to compare it to. So you really followed your gut, which is something that we talk about a lot on, yeah. on the podcast, which is what we have to do. So we don't always have that support of the of, of what should be a team. Even family. Uh, you know, I had family who also, calm down, she's fine. She's fine. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's you. So, and I know other families must have that as well because, mm -hmm. you know, it's a part of denial and mm -hmm. yeah. So uh, Vicky, if, uh, if you can tell us a little bit about uh, the first years after the diagnosis, like your life with uh, Jess, Jessica, like how, how did that uh, unfold for you? I know that for many families, those are the hard years of adjusting to a new reality. So if you can share your experience. I, I wish Vicky now could talk to Vicky then <laughs> and uh, just say, okay, calm down. You're, you're going to be okay. You're going to survive this. You're actually going to thrive and your family will thrive. But of course, Vicky then didn't know that. Um, when I got back to Buffalo, after hearing that diagnosis, I went to uh, Buffalo woman, woman, it, it was actually called Buffalo Children's Hospital then. Now it's called Oshai and spoke with the head of uh, Robert Warner Rehab Center. He thought that Jessica looked similar to his children. And so genetically, we were looking for, uh, it, it was called Cri de Chat. It's a, uh, a deletion in the fifth chromosome. She yes. doesn't have that. Oh. And, but for years, we thought she had that. So we went to national Credit meetings and credit means cry of the cat because most of the children with this diagnosis have a very high pitched cry. Jessica did not have that cry. So we noticed when we were at these meetings, everyone kind of looked like cousins and Jessica did not look like a cousin. And it was later identified that she did not have this diagnosis. Meanwhile, I, I went into mama, mama fix it mode and I did something called patterning. Have you heard of patterning? No. 
Okay. Um, that could be another two hour session, but I'm just going to say it's, 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 it's not something the medical professionals, um, uh, um, advise, but it, there's nothing that could hurt a child. And basically we, uh, I did a modified version where four hours a day, six days a week, I had volunteers come into our house and move Jessica in ways, and I always do this because we did so much with her arms to try to create new pathways to her brain. The mm. philosophy being that when she was in the womb, the pathway didn't develop right, and let's let's kind of make a, a new new roads to the brain. Uh, it, it it didn't work, and we spent probably two years doing that, and the problem with that and for other new families is that I spent so much time trying to, I didn't realize that fix Jessica, but trying to give her every opportunity because the, the person who we were working with with patterning said every minute you lose is, is a month for a child like yours. Oh, so I pressure. felt this pressure of, Oh no, I, I, I've got to keep going. And I remember one day my husband was sitting on the couch with Jess and they were watching football. And uh, I'm like, what is, you know, are, are, you need to stimulate her. And he looks uh -huh. at me. She's also my daughter who can sit and watch TV with us. And, uh -huh. and I would love to say, wow, light bulb, that changed me. But I heard another um, speaker who was talking about siblings. What actually changed me is having another child because mm -hmm. you do not have the time anymore to, to, to be obsessed 24 seven. Um, once I uh, had another child, we stopped patterning and our life became really, it was so much for the better. But the beginning, it was very, very hard. It was, it was hard because there was, there's so much unknown. Yeah. And so many, I mean, you are just speaking the language of so many parents who just feel like we have to do constant therapies and constant, you know, techniques because of that very pressure. So it's just so debilitating for everyone to be so focused on a cure or fixing it and just letting children be children, at least part of the time. Um, so what, what, sorry, what were you going to say? I just wanted to say during my career, I, I worked what I did was I worked with other families of young children with disabilities mm -hmm. and I always made sure that I, I spoke to them about, yes, the therapies are important, but it's equally important. Go to the playground, yeah. go to the mall, have mm -hmm. fun. It's not all about therapies. There's a, a, a bonding that needs to take as mother and child and family and child and, and your child will thrive on that as much as every therapy but yeah. you know it's that's it's hard to convince yeah, hindsight is 20 hindsight is 2020 2020 boy am i smart in hindsight <laughs> <laughs> there's also a societal pressure to do all the other stuff and um you know there there's a real tinge of ableism in that that we got to cure it we got to fix it and this you know this is going to work um so what what when did you become an activist in this area so I call myself an, an, an advocate. Um, I, when Jessica was born, I had my undergrad degree in elementary education. And, and I've, I've said this on, on numerous times, other times. 
they asked me after if I wanted to go into special education for my master's. And I went, oh, I'm not going to have the patience for that. And I always say, karma. Guess <laughs> <laughs> what? I have way more patience than I thought. <laughs> um, so after Jessica was uh, you know, a few years old, I went back for my master's in special education. And originally, I just went back because I wanted to be able to have all the information so I can advocate for Jess. But I had an amazing opportunity to work for the Early Childhood Direction Center. It's no longer funded, but it was funded by New York State. And my grant was administered by Children's Hospital. And what we did, we worked with families of children, birth to five with special needs. And we also worked with all the professionals who worked with these families. So we helped families understand transition, going from early intervention to uh, school preschool and then school aid. And so I got a taste. We got, we, I spoke to families all day long and got a taste of advocating. And, um, and I retired uh, about five years ago. But my daughter moved into kind of a unique group home. And I get a lot of calls now from families who are older. How did you do the group home thing? How, how is it having an adult? And I also get calls from young families, you know, who, who know of me, who still ask. So I, I still help advocate when I can. Um, uh, but I that was, oh, sorry. sorry. That was kind of a, a silver lining to all this because I really didn't know that was going to be part of, of my journey. And, um, and it was the best part. I was a director and administrator of the program and all of that. But talking to families and working with families, that was really what I loved doing. So we definitely want to talk more about the group home, but uh, before we dive into that, I wanted to ask you about the writing and how did the writing come about and when did you start with the kind of uh, being an author of your own life? So, all right, I'm going to just plug it again. <laughs> Raising plug Jess's away. story. Three awards. Yay. <laughs> Congratulations. You know, and, uh, it's, it's, I was just talking to another author and, and writing the book. I loved every moment of it. Promoting the book is very hard work. <laughs> um, so I always loved to write and I had uh, articles in our local newspapers and local magazines. And, um, and my mom always said to me, Vicki, you should write a book. And I always said, oh, please, I've got three children. One is in a wheelchair, I'm working full time. I can't write a book. And then I retired. And um, my kids gave me like old school dictionary and thesaurus and a pen and paper <laughs> to write your book. And I thought both like both you, your parents, I thought, what am I going to write like a daily diary? Today I did this. I woke up at eight o'clock. I gave Jessica medicine. You know, I, I didn't know where to start. And then I read, um, I read a book. It was a book of essays written by somebody who had a really devastating stroke. And he was only able to write, um, friend was able to write, he was only able to say what words through eye gaze and uh, wrote a whole book and it was written in essays. And I thought, oh, that's how I write. I can write this in essays. So that kind of started it. 
and um, my mom at the same time developed Alzheimer's. So I felt like I had a real time clock. I wanted, I wanted her to know I wrote the book. Mm-hmm. So I would write a chapter every morning. I woke up at 6 a.m. It took four and a half years. Write a chapter. I would, um, my husband would be my first editor to say, yeah, this is how I remember it happening. And then my son was my second editor and he's tough. If it got through him, I thought, okay, I'm good. I'm on the road. And then I would send it to my dad and he read every raw chapter to my mom. And so before it was formally edited and published, she did hear the whole book and she got on the phone and at that point she was hardly speaking. And she got on the phone and she said, love your book. So like, I knew she heard it. I knew yeah. she knew I did it. Yeah. And, and I wish she would have seen the finished product, but but so that's how it happened. But I really wanted to share our story. I'll just give a, a brief little story. There was a grandparent whose granddaughter has a similar diagnosis to Jessica and the daughter. And I belong to a, um, a Facebook um, support group and they're part of this group. And he bought the book for himself and his daughter and they both read it. And he said, he said, it opened up conversations for me that I was unable to have with my daughter because I didn't know how to broach this conversation, but mm-hmm. you had said it. And then we started talking and he said it was just, oh, bless you. He said it was just a beautiful way for them to enhance their conversation and an understanding of each other. Wow. That's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And that's often, that's why we all share so much because it gives people license and it's like, okay, they did it, so I can do it. I mean, something as simple as just being exposed to other people doing something can really stir something in you and say, oh, this is actually okay to do. This is, Nobody's going to disappear if we bring this up or, you know, run screaming or, you know, you can just try. And we, that's really, that's something that's very powerful from any parent sharing their story. So thank you for for taking the time. That's really amazing. And you were very disciplined, it sounds like, in writing this. I mean, in taking I am very disciplined. I am the most disciplined, disorganized person you know. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so, I am so disciplined. And then, you know, you see papers and this and that, but yeah. That's great. So going back to going to back to her childhood and your earlier parenting, what what were the teenage years like? Because for a lot of parents, the teenage years are very different from the early years. So can you describe what that was like? Um, I'm sorry, Iris, I'm trying to remember who has a child with cerebral palsy. I do. I do. Okay. Okay. And and um when you're, ch- how old is your, is your child? My, my daughter is 15 and she uses okay. a high gaze communication to talk. Okay. So when your child becomes um, a teenager, but still has similar needs that they did as maybe anybody else's toddler or even younger has, which is like Jessica, there are a, a why I was saying that is the the physical part becomes hard. Now your your child is fifteen, and there's you know you you have to figure out how to do the lifting without destroying your back, and you have to learn how to lift, and you have to have the appropriate equipment. Um, 
my husband and I tried to be heroes for a long time. I mean, I was lifting Jessica. She weighed maybe 20 pounds less than me, getting her in our car. And then we were lifting the wheelchair and she did not have an electric wheelchair. Putting that in the car until somebody said to me, you, you got to stop doing this. And then we got a van. But so, so the, the, the physicality of it was a, a huge change. Also education. We went, Jessica's a lot older than, than your children. So we went um, from fully excluded, I would say, and and we did a lot of different um, types of education, but in middle school, Jessica became fully included, and that was she was a first in our middle school to come to to school and uh, first wheelchair user, and so they had to adapt the school a lot for her, and um, the middle school years were great. But as she aged out of middle school, we realized for high school, it wouldn't be in our situation, it, it wouldn't be as, as easy to do that. The classes are different, the classrooms are different, the kids are different. And so we did more of a reverse inclusion, whereas um, high school kids who were interested in working with individuals who receive services came into the classroom. And uh, this was a huge success. And Jessica went to every prom and every, she was in chorus and she, she did so many inclusive things, but she also got a lot of the skills she needed for later on when she was in a, a, as an adult. So I think the, I mean, every part of being a parent of a child with a disability, there's so many transitions. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there, there are, you know, the whole life is, is transition. Yeah. But the teenage years are, are also a huge transition because you're starting to think, okay, what's adulthood going to look like? And what is, and, and what, what are we going to be able to do? And what are we not going to be able to do forever? And mm -hmm. how do I um, start working on these things now? And so it, it's, it was a big learning experience. Okay. It's not just practical. I'm, it's emotion. It's emotional preparation, as uh, along with practical. So um, you know, we need to brace ourselves for that. We think that okay, we did all that and we're done, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh my gosh, this is this is going to be going on forever, and uh, everything's changed, and resources change, and the services change. So it's it's a lot to tackle, and I don't, you know, I think that a lot of people are not prepared for that. Um, which is why we like to talk about it, especially in our podcast and all that we do, because this is, you know, we got to, we got to um, fortify ourselves to be able to deal with these, these kinds of transitions, because the emotional can be a lot harder than the practical um, in a lot of cases, not always, but um, it's important to think about that as you're heading into those years. So it, this is the no fluff part of your, of your exactly. <laughs> right? yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So Vicky, yeah. I, I want to ask you a little bit about the, the thought, the decision, the kind of path that led into the placement in a group home. If you can share that, I know that lots of parents are dealing with that kind of internal debate of uh, discussing with themselves the futures or the future of their children uh, where and why so if you can talk to that a bit 
Yeah, I, I actually do presentations on this and I call it plan B. And it's, uh, it's difficult. And I'm just, I'm going to put myself in the story right now when Jessica was born. And um, at that point, there were institutions. And in my mind, she was never moving into a group home. And my husband and I were convinced she was never moving into a group home. And as time went on, and Jessica got older, and we got older, and she is somebody who needs assistance with all daily life skills. So we're talking feeding, going to the bathroom, dressing, everything you would do for, for a toddler or an infant, Jessica needs done for her. And the reality comes in of how are you going to do this forever? So I, it, it took some convincing um, for my husband uh, to, because both, I was in the field, so I kind of knew what a group home was like. And he, I had to show him what a group home looked like and that it was not an institution. It was actually like a family home. Mm-hmm. We, uh, I joined this local group who was creating a unique group home in the community. And, and this was in 2007 or six, and there was abundant funding. And I know maybe your audience don't even know what that word means because there has not been abundant funding in forever, but we had a window and we were able to build this home with a human service agency that allowed for five women with, um unique skills and a lot of family involvement and so when we first joined this group i thought i'm going to join because i'm going to give them my special education expertise jessica's not moving into this house i'm just there to help them (laughs) and we met for about a year like that and then they said oh let's do a subcommittee and i thought all right i'll join the subcommittee and then it was like okay we need five women and we did it. And, and I just want to say to families, and I, I, this is one of the hardest decisions you, I, all right, this is one of the hardest decisions we had to make, but we wanted to be able to have Jessica living in a house that was our decision where she was living with the people that we chose that she was living with and setting up all the supports for her while we were able to do this versus an emergency placement. And what happens to many families, there are families who are in their parents are 70s and 80s and their their adult children need similar help to Jessica. And all of a sudden they can't do it anymore. And there's an emergency placement. Is it even in the community? Maybe. Is it in a house you would have chosen? Maybe. And so it's real important to, to, I think, to do this while you're healthy enough to make this step and to provide all the support that's needed and all the supports that's needed when you're no longer on the planet. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. It's a very, um, and it's a really hard thing for people to kind of process and tackle that, you know, but it needs to be said, you don't want 
you you want your child to be able to acclimate to a place while you're still around, while you're still able to to really be there for them, as opposed to all of a sudden there's a there's just like a shock to everyone's system, and that can make it so much worse. So even though it seems like it's a harder thing to do, it's 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 the smarter thing to do for for all reasons um, to get it going or even to start thinking about it and to start taking steps toward that. So thank you for sharing that. I just want to add um, something. So when Jessica, even when she comes home now, she will not move her wheelchair, will not, will not go to her house. She hears them starting to cook in the kitchen. At the last time we're sitting together, we're talking, all of a sudden someone's in the kitchen. She does a three point turn turns <laughs> does a like a a real cut right into the kitchen she never did this at home and, and the other the other thing that's just beautiful she has a a friend in the house who is has many more skills than jessica she you know, she she can do she can take care of herself mm -hmm. the relationship between these two women I wish I could send you the picture. It, it's so beautiful. It's just, it's a beautiful relationship. So Jessica developed friendships on her own. This is, this is typical stuff. Your kids move out of the house. <laughs> they become as independent as they can be and they develop their own relationships and friendships and it's yeah. okay. Yeah. So I think a lot of us feel like, okay, they can't live, they can never live independently, but there's a lot of stuff that can be done um, to give as much independence as possible. And I think that once we open our mind to the different uh, possibilities for some kind of an in independence, it's a little bit easier to kind of wrap your head around, uh, you know, having having our children live, you know, I, I look at it as roommates, like they're living in a house with roommates. Absolutely. You know, it's a mental shift. It's like, you know, who, what, what, what adult doesn't want that to be able to move out of the house from their parents and have some some semblance of independence. Um, I have I have our, our last question for you. What would you like to share with other parents um, in our community about um, your journey, their journey, anything about disability that you'd like to to elaborate on for them? Your words of wisdom with all your experience. <laughs> um, I, one thing is embrace a changed life so so many people oh i'm sorry and feel bad mm -hmm. and 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 we don't feel bad for ourselves our life it's not what we planned it's absolutely not what we planned it's not even anything we knew about but it's been a beautiful journey and we have learned so much from jessica our mm -hmm. siblings and the people around us so mm -hmm. although it's not what we planned, it, it's still okay. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and, and just two other things for yes, the families. <laughs> I, I know I just said it, but think of plan B. Even if you think you're never going to do it, mm -hmm. think of plan B. And, and um, I know a lot of families sometimes struggle with, should I have more children after they have a child? Uh, with a disability. And for us, it was, it was the right decision. And it didn't take away anything from what we needed to do for our daughter. It enhanced her life with siblings. Mm 
mm-hmm. and and our life as a family. So, um, and I, if I'll I'll give a, the final thing about my book. It's it's not only for families, but it's also for it's for siblings and for grandparents and teachers, mm-hmm. and um, and I've tried to send the book to um, physicians so they can get the family perspective. Mm, and what families are going through, the the parent perspective. So important. Thank you. We're trying to do, we're trying to do the same thing. So we're all on the same page. We need to get everybody in society involved in our journey because disability is a, is a normal part of life. I mean, diversity is, we're all diverse in different ways and it's a normal part of life. So Get on board, everybody else. We know it as parents, but everybody else needs to get on board as well. So thank you so much. Iris, did you have anything you wanted to add? No, Vicky, I just wanted to thank you, A, for writing the book and B, for joining us uh, for this episode. I uh, I think uh, every individual experience is so unique and so important to hear because it it gives yet another um, aspect to our collective story. And uh, I really appreciate you discussing all of this uh, in an open mind and heart. And thank you for joining us today. And thank you for all of our listeners, uh, old and new. And yes, you wanted to add something? I just want to thank both of you. Thank you for, for hosting me today, but also thank you for what you're doing, because it's so important for families to hear this from parents who, who are experienced and so people who've walked in their shoes. So thank you also for what you're doing. And I'm sorry I interrupted. No, no, all all is good. And I, um, yeah, I want to mention to all of our listeners, if you have any questions uh, for Alma, myself, or for Vicky, please feel free to write to us at info at two moms, no fluff. And uh, listen in for our next episode in a couple of weeks. Thank you so much. Have a beautiful day. Thank you. Bye-bye. For more information, please go to www.twomomsnofluff.com. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and give it a five-star rating so more people can hear it. Thank you.